Well, fair warning, this is going to be a bit of a fire hose, (laughs) Uh, as we are going to attempt to go through the entire book of Romans in around 45 minutes. Um, (laughs) Let me start by saying, uh, if you are at any point confused about uh, where I am or what I'm saying, I'm going to try to remember to say what verses I'm summarizing before I summarize them. So I'll talk about the chapter, the verse, then I'll summarize that section and move on to the next thing. Before we get started, I want to quickly explain why doing entire books in one sitting is helpful and important. Uh, First off, these letters are individual letters. Oftentimes we think of them in the context of the entire Bible, but they're individual letters written to a particular place, particular people for a particular purpose. And uh, Paul wrote the letter of Romans, and he wrote it as one letter, not three different letters. And what that means is everything in the book of Romans is interconnected and related, and we are meant to see it as one volume of thought. And so when we are interpreting the Bible, our goal is to understand what the author attempted to communicate. And when we look at the entire book, we are better able to understand and assimilate the information that we hear, uh, better understand what Paul was trying to say. Additionally, sometimes you'll run into uh, strange or difficult to interpret verses in the Bible. And in Romans, there are several of them where you read them and you're like, man, that's a hard verse. I don't know what to do with that. And when you understand the flow and logic of the entire book, that helps in understanding what individual verses are trying to say. Uh, We'll we'll talk about some of those specifics a little later on, but it's helpful for us uh, when interpreting difficult verses. So understanding context. Is, is really what I'm getting at. Uh, additionally, when we look at the flow of an entire book, it helps us to see why certain verses are, have become so significant in Christianity. Why we focus on some verses and delight in them and say, this is the verse that summarizes the gospel or something like that. When we, we'll see this tonight. When we get to certain verses, that's like where Paul pivots and says, but now, and, and explains. And it's really, it adds a greater clarity to those verses when we consider the entire book. So I'd encourage you on your own time, take uh, whole chunks, uh, like just take a whole book, uh, Romans or something else, sit down and study it as a book. It's fun to do, it's helpful, and I'd encourage you to do it. Uh, So let me pray, and then we will go ahead and get started. Uh, Father, tonight we ask that you would be honored and glorified by uh, studying your word. Lord, thank you for scripture. Thank you that we can trust it. Thank you that it informs our lives. Uh, Lord, would you help me to be clear and brief And uh, Lord, would you please let nothing untrue come out of my mouth. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's get started with a basic structure of the book. These are the uh, major category divisions of the book of Romans. The first chapter uh, is just kind of Paul's introduction, and then he gives his thesis, which will kind of uh, be what he's talking about for the first bit of Romans. And then the first major section runs for the first three chapters, and that is God's wrath on unrighteousness. Then we turn the corner and talk about God's righteousness revealed, which is really talking about justification. Uh, Then we will turn another corner and start talking about how we are slaves to this righteousness, which is really sanctification. Uh, We'll define all these things in a little bit. After that, we will talk about how God's promises are certain. And so when God says that he will certainly save us and we have a hope in eternity, um, that is, uh, I forgot to start the timer. (laughs) Uh, That is going to be talked about there. And then at the end, Paul kind of gives uh, practical applications, the so what of all this. Uh, So we learned all this doctrine, now what do we do? So let's uh, talk about the introduction and greeting. This is chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. When Paul starts, he establishes his authority as an apostle. He says that he was called to be an apostle, and he was set apart for the gospel. He was set apart by God. It was not something that he aspired to. God appointed him to that office. He then quickly summarizes the gospel in verses verses 2 through 6. In the next section, verses 8 through 15, he expresses his desire to go to Rome. He's never been there. He's heard about their faith. He wants to encourage them and be mutually encouraged by them. And then we get to Romans 1, 16 and 17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, 
Uh, you have probably heard this verse and maybe even have it memorized because this is one of the most well-known verses in Christianity. And I think it's somewhat of a travesty that no one ever really emphasizes verse 17, which is really the point that he's going to expound in the next several chapters of Romans. Verse 17 says, For in it, meaning in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, So, How is God's righteousness revealed? It's through faith. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage that says the righteous shall live by faith. That is what Paul is going to prove in the first couple chapters here. First section, God's wrath on unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 through 3.20. Paul begins by establishing our need. Our problem is sin. And we need help. We need to be saved. We naturally reject God, and we are unable to establish our own righteousness by any system of works, whether that be the Mosaic law or any other uh, law. We cannot be righteous by obedience to a law. In chapter uh, 1, verse 18 through 32, the, first, uh, the, the rest of chapter 1 there, uh, Paul talks about the downward spiral of humanity. And it starts off with him talking about how all mankind knows that God exists, but refuses to worship him. They, they suppress the truth. Uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20 through 21 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God revealed himself in creation, but people did not honor God as God, and so God gave them over to their folly. We see this pattern repeated throughout chapter 1, where God hands people over or gives them over to the sin that they want. God grants people what they want. If you want sin, God says, Okay, I give you over to your sin. And part of the judgment on sin is itself the fact that you continue to sin in spiral downward. Uh, He talks a lot in this chapter about exchanging the natural for the unnatural. And he uses homosexuality as a kind of chief example of this. Uh, uh, Sex is a, a natural thing that is not... It's very clear how it should work. And homosexuality is a very evident uh, uh, distortion of that. It's exchanging what's natural for what's unnatural. And so Paul uses that as a kind of example to to illustrate what he's talking about. This whole chapter ends with God, in verse 28, giving them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now, this verse is critical to understand because it shows that our sin is not just something that we do. The effect of sin, the judgment of God for sin, is that it changes us in some way. More than just, now we're a sinner. We have a problem, a problem that is deeper than just our actions. Our mind has been corrupted. Our heart has been darkened. And this is not a problem that we can escape on our own. Um, He then lands at the end of chapter 1 in verse 32. He says... These people who who are rejecting God and uh, what he has made evident to them, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I think that this so completely uh, identifies our current culture and world. Uh, They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I think that's significant. Okay, so in summary, mankind suppresses the truth about God in creation. No one on Judgment Day will stand before God and say, I didn't know you exist, existed. God will say, you did know. I told you in creation, and you have rejected it. They will be held accountable for that on judgment. That's chapter one. Turning to chapter two, Paul answers a, a kind of objection to this. So, okay, okay, you're telling me that humanity's rejected God, and they're wicked, all right, all right. But what about the people who aren't as wicked? What about those people who do good things or the law-abiding people or the Jews who are God's people? What about them? Romans 2, 1 through 3 uh, says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
everyone will be judged on the basis of their works. Everyone. The problem is, is that no one has works that are favorable to God. No one has works that will establish them in God's sight. They will not be judged favorably on the basis of their works, even if they are generally law-abiding people. Okay, so, okay, okay, what about people who don't even have the law? What, what about people who don't know any better? Well, what do you do about them? Well, Paul answers that next. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have uh, the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts uh, accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What he is saying here is that even people who don't have the law show that they know that there is a right and there is a wrong, and they know that they've done wrong. Even if they don't have the particulars of the law, God has written on our hearts the knowledge of morality right and wrong. And every human knows, if they're being honest with themselves, that they have broken that law and are uh, liable for, for judgment. Uh, so after this, uh, or the point of this is with or without the law, uh, no one will be seen as righteous. Regardless of if, if you have the law or not, no one can keep that law. Then he aims specifically at the Jews in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Jews, who might have thought of themselves as all that, you know, out of the woods here. Yeah, yeah, but we're God's chosen people. Paul says, ah, you're in with us on this here. You, you don't get out of, uh, get an out of jail free card on this. You're in just as much trouble, if not more trouble. Uh, Romans 2, 23 through 24 says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This would have been a slap in the face to the Jews. This would have been uh, insulting. That on, on their account, uh, God's name was blasphemed amongst the Gentiles. They did not adhere or obey the law, and so they too would suffer the consequences, the effects of this judgment that was to come. He then talks about how uh, their physical circumcision means nothing if they are not adhering to the law at the end of that chapter. Genuine circumcision, argues Paul, is circumcision of the heart, not an outward sign, but an inward reality. The point is this. Just being Jewish doesn't give you a free pass. You're in this mess too, and you also will be judged on the basis of your inability to obey and submit perfectly to God's law. Then we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 8, Paul asks if, or he kind of asks a logical question. So, so you're saying being a Jew doesn't put me in a better standing before God. Okay, but then what advantage is being a Jew? Is being a Jew of any advantage? And Paul says, yes, being a Jew is of advantage because they are given the oracles of God or the writings of God. The Jews had scripture. That meant they knew what God had said. They, they knew what he had revealed. They had access to God's word. That is an advantage. Not, that's not meaning that they won't be judged or they'll be judged on a different basis. It simply means that uh, they, they have some kind of advantage to tell them what they need to do. Uh, so God has shown, uh, in the next couple of verses, God has shown to be just and righteous even despite everyone else's faithlessness. Paul asks, if our unrighteousness shows God righteous, God's righteousness, so if us sinning shows and demonstrates that God is righteous, if we see a contrast in that, if he's shown to be faithful by our faithlessness, then is sinning even judge, uh, can sin be judged? Is sin a bad thing? And Paul's answer is, by no means, of course not. Our unrighteousness, even though it does show the righteousness of God, doesn't justify our actions. That doesn't make them right and it still makes us liable for judgment. And then Paul summarizes everything that he said in the first three chapters in this little section here. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We're all in trouble. (laughs) That's Paul's point. We are in serious trouble, universally. Jew, Gentile, person who has the law, person who doesn't have the law, it doesn't matter. All of us are unrighteous. And unfortunately, God's standard is righteousness. So that leaves us in a bit of a pickle. He opened up this section in verse 18, talking about how God's uh, wrath is being revealed on unrighteousness and ungodliness. All of us are unrighteous. All of us are ungodly. And so every single last one of us is under the judgment of God. And what's worse, we have no excuse. On the day of judgment, we can't say, I didn't know there was a God. God has shown us in nature. And we won't be able to say, I didn't have the law. God has written a law on our hearts. There is no good news for us when it comes to our works. He clarifies all this in, uh, skip verse 19. You can read it, but I'm reading verse 20 here. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being, not just Jews, no human being will be justified in his sight by working uh, through any system of law, whether that be the Mosaic law or any other law. No one will be justified in his sight by law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, that's a problem. But luckily, uh, Romans has lots more chapters, and Paul moves on to God's righteousness revealed, justification. So we're unrighteous, and judgment is coming. He's established that. He's hammered that. It's kind of depressing, Uh, but that's the way it is. He turns the corner here and says, we needed another solution, one that wasn't dependent on our ability to live up to a standard, some external solution, some other way to solve our problem of unrighteousness. The solution, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, the next couple verses, he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This verse, this but now, I think is one of the best but nows in the entire Bible. (laughs) It's awesome. So notice he's pulling on the same idea that he introduced in his thesis in Romans 1, 17. The righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed or uh, shown. It's been made publicly, uh, put publicly out there. How is that righteousness of God been manifested? apart from the law, not through the law, separate from the law, separate from a system of works, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That means that the law and the prophets talk about this, but that doesn't mean that our righteousness is through the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We can have the very righteousness of God apart from the law. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 23 through 30, expounds this idea and talks about what that means. He explains that on the basis of this external righteousness, God's righteousness that we can have, we are declared righteous. So God looks at us and declares us not guilty, righteous, justifies us, not because we obeyed the law, but because we had faith in Jesus and were counted as righteous. We were given the righteousness of God. So we're justified on the basis of an alien righteousness, an external righteousness. Additionally, Paul says that the wrath of God is averted to Jesus. We're not under that coming wrath anymore because Jesus was the propitiation uh, for for our sins. That that means he averted the wrath of God on the cross. He, He makes sure we understand that this is not by faith, or I'm sorry, it is by faith, not by works, Um, so that no one can boast about this. And then he also clarifies that both Jews and Gentiles are justified through faith. Okay, now we turn the corner into chapter four. Chapter three, the end of it was a a doctrinal heavy section. He's just explaining, here's the way it works. In chapter four, he provides proof texts from the Old Testament to prove his case in uh, the end of chapter three there. This is his proof text. You know, when you write an essay, sometimes you have to quote something that proves it, right? That's what he's doing right here. So he proves his point by appealing to the Old Testament. In chapter four, verses one through eight, he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham heard the promise of God, believed God, and the Bible tells us that that faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
Abraham was counted righteous on the basis of his faith. So Paul says, if Abraham was counted righteous on the basis of his faith, so too are we counted righteous on the basis of faith. A great summary, a couple of verses here is in chapter four, four through five. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you do works, what you earn is not a gift, it's what, you're, what you deserve, it's your due, it's, it's your wage. But if you stop working, if you stop trying to earn your righteousness, just believe in the God who justifies ungodly people, then your faith will be counted as righteousness. Nothing to earn, no special works here, just as it was for Abraham and David, which is the next example that Paul turns to in the next couple of verses. David sinned with Bathsheba, Uh, And he clearly didn't live up to the perfect standard of God's law. Yet Paul quotes him saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. David certainly didn't earn his righteousness, but he too was forgiven and counted righteous on the basis of faith. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, uh, he talks about Abraham being counted as righteous prior to being circumcised. That's significant because circumcision then is not a requirement for being justified. Abraham wasn't circumcised when he was counted as righteous by his faith. And so both Jew and Gentile can both have this righteousness through faith, not dependent on circumcision. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 13, 13 through 25, the whole rest of this chapter speaks more on how it was Abraham's faith that counted him righteous, not works. Paul explains a little bit of why he focused on Abraham. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 12. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Paul's point, what was true of Abraham is also true of us. If we believe in God's promise, we are counted righteous, not via the law, but via grace. Chapter 5. So what is the benefit of justification? What does this get us? Therefore, since we have been justified by God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have peace and access to God. We have hope of future glory. That means no judgment. This fixes the problem of the wrath of God, our justification. In uh, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he talks about how justification allows us to endure sufferings, which ultimately produces hope, and our hope won't be put to shame. That means that we will get what we hope for because of the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In verses 6 through 11, Paul expands on this love of God. This love of God is what caused God to die for his enemy. God died for us. We were enemies of God. And yet he loved us so much that he died for us. The death of Jesus brought us our justification and his resurrection is our life. In chapter five, verses 12 through 21, Paul explains how Jesus, who's one man, can justify a whole host of people who are many men. You'd kind of expect a one-to-one, life-for-life sort of thing going on. If Jesus took our place, and that means he satisfies one person's wrath. But why is it that he can uh, cover all of our problems in one fell swoop. Well, he appeals to Adam. Uh, yes, Adam uh, is what, the, the one who plunged humanity into sin and condemnation. The universal consequences of Adam's sin is that we are all initially declared guilty. All of us are born with sin. And in the same way that one man affected all of humanity towards sin, one man affects all who believe for righteousness. In chapter 5, verse 18 through 19, Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, condemnation is the opposite of justification. It's it's, uh, being declared guilty. Uh, So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So legally, Adam's transgression led to our condemnation. Legally, Jesus' work leads to our justification. But then he says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... I think that's talking about morally, we sin because we are in Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice, will be made righteous. 
future tense there. In the future, we will be made righteous because of Jesus' obedience. This is no longer legality. This isn't talking about justification. This is talking about sanctification, which is our next section in Romans. Paul is going to talk about how we our, are sanctified, which means we are conformed to the image of Jesus, or we are made righteous, not so that we can be judged on the basis of our works, but as an expression of what God has done in our hearts. This is chapters 6 through 8. Um, I clicked too early. That's okay. So chapter 6, Paul's logical question that he kicks off chapter 6 with is if sin makes grace abound, meaning uh, if we're justified by our sin and that shows the grace of God, then can't we just keep on sinning? In other words, if we're justified by faith alone, then why do works matter? Why, why, do, they, why do we have to do works? Uh, Paul's uh, answer to this is, by no means, of course you can't keep sinning. Um, he, he explains why in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He explains that we have been united with Christ, and our baptism represents this reality. We have died with Christ, our old nature was put to death, and we have been raised to new life with him, and, and baptism represents that. He uses that as kind of illustration to, to show that point. We have been raised to new life, meaning we have a new nature, a new heart, those who have been raised with Christ must live in accordance with their new nature. He commands us here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but he commands, don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. So, so can you keep sinning? No, he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And then in verse 14, he says, not a command, but a promise. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Flag that verse. We're coming back to it at the beginning of chapter 7. His point there is, sin will not conquer you like it once did. Because you are not under law, you're under grace. What does that mean? You're not judged on the basis of law anymore. That was fulfilled in Christ. You are now judged on the basis of grace. And that is very good news for all of us. That's a promise. And then in verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 15 through 23, he says, he explains a potential error. He says, okay, so if we're not under law, does that mean that we have no standard that we have to live by? There's no right or wrong and we can do whatever we want? Again, he says, by no means. Of course we can't. Uh, if we obey sin, that shows that we are enslaved to sin. And if we obey righteousness, we show that we're free from sin and slaves to righteousness. We are now slaves to righteousness positionally. And so our actions reflect uh, the truth about us. Our actions demonstrate who our master is. The very last verse of Romans chapter 6 is a well-known verse. Uh, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is... Yeah, as I don't remember it. Uh, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A lot of times this is used as a good gospel summary, and it is a good gospel summary. But actually what Paul is saying here in the context of his whole flow is he's like, listen, the, pain, the, the punishment for sin is death, separation from God. You are now, you have a new nature. You have a new a heart. Why would you do that which brought you the thing you're trying to escape? Why would you live in accordance with the judgment? The free gift of God is eternal life. We want to live in accordance with that. Chapter 7. So we're not under law, but under grace. Remember I told you to flag verse 14 of chapter 6? He kind of explains now in chapter 7, what is our relationship to the law? He uses the example of marriage. When you're married to someone, if your spouse dies, you are no longer bound to that marriage. You're free from that marriage. And in the same way, we have died in Christ and we are no longer bound to the law. We are free from the law. We don't serve a written code that brings death anymore. We serve the spirit and we're judged as perfectly righteous on the basis of Jesus's works, not our own. So in chapter seven, verses seven through 12, the logical question of Paul saying that the law brought death and sin is to ask, so is the law sin? If the law is the thing that brings sin here, is the law just sin? And he answers, by no means. The law helps us. He explains that the law is our guide. We didn't know what sin was until the law told us. That's a benefit to us. It's a good thing for us. It reveals what God desires and it guides us. The problem isn't the law. The problem is sin. The problem's with us, what he explained in the first three chapters. That's the issue. 
Sin produces sinful acts by twisting the law to its own purposes. So is the law sin? So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul gives a resounding not at all. So the next logical question, chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. So does the law, the good law, bring death? Is that what brings death? Again, he answers, by no means. The problem again here was sin. Sin is what brought death. You know, Paul is going through great lengths to establish that the law is good here. The law is not the problem. The law is from God. Sin is what ruined everything. And then he enters into a, uh, the, the section about a war that we all experience. The war between uh, our sin and flesh and uh, the, the spirit, our, our desire to obey the law. Paul explains that Christians want to do good, that we agree with the law, we delight in the law. Our sin wars, though, against what we want. We still sin despite wanting to honor God. And Paul talks very personally in this section. He talks about, I want to do good, but I just can't do the good that I want to do. It's, a, it's anguishing for him that he can't obey the way he wants to. And after expressing this, he concludes this with this statement, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So at, we turn again to chapter 8, and the very first verse of chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is huge, coming out of the whole section about him talking about how he struggled with sin. This battle, this war is going on, and he says, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's meant to encourage us. The law of the Spirit, he says, sets us free from the law of sin and death. Remember, the law of the Spirit here in, in this section he's talking about is being under grace, not under the law. Uh, the secret weapon that Paul talks about that we can use, that, that we are given against our flesh, is the Holy Spirit, because of the Holy Spirit, we really can obey the law of the Spirit. Contrast that with Romans 3, where no one is righteous, no one can do good. In Romans 8, 7 through 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God apart from the Spirit of God. But now that we've been given the Spirit of God, we actually can do good things in honor, to, to honor and praise and glorify God. Romans 8, 11 says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. He'll give life to your mortal bodies, not just eternal life, but life in, in sanctification to honor him and obey his law. We will be sanctified via the Spirit despite the presence of the flesh. In chapter 8, verses 12 through 27, Paul talks about uh, we who are led by the Spirit and not the flesh are sons of God via adoption. The Spirit shows us that we are children by sanctifying us, explains Paul. What that means is as our works are conformed to Jesus, that shows us and confirms for us that we are children of God. Adoption and the work of the Spirit will certainly lead to future glorification, which simply means in the future we'll have no more sin, our flesh will be done away with, and we'll have perfected bodies. We will suffer now, explains Paul, but the future glory is worth the present suffering because it's so much better than any comfort on earth that we may have. Even creation is waiting for this future day of redemption, he says. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, uh, our sufferings and our flesh by praying for us, as he continues in Romans 8. And he last explains that the Spirit helps us according to the will of God. So these are all in that uh, chapter 8, verse 12 through 27 section. Then we get to some of the greatest verses in Romans, uh, verses 28 through 30, where he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28, even these present sufferings that he was talking about earlier in chapter 8 
are for our good. And in this context, in, in this flow specifically, our good means our sanctification. God uses even sufferings to make us look like Jesus. In verses 29 through 30, we see that God knew us even before the foundation of the world, and he chose us to be sanctified by the Spirit. Everyone that God predestines, he will sanctify, he will justify, and he will ultimately glorify. This is a sure thing, a confident hope. He's saying this so that we can have confidence that our future hope of glory is sure and confident. Everyone that God justifies will surely be sanctified and eventually glorified. He then ex- just expresses this. I'm not going to read the whole thing for a sake of time. Um, but he, at the, uh, the next, yeah, at the end, he says, who shall separate us, this is verse 35, from the love of, love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And his point here is nothing separates us from the love of Christ that was shown to us that will certainly, certainly result in our future glorification. We can conquer anything the world throws at us, says Paul. Any suffering through the work of God in justifying and sanctifying us. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. God enables us to successfully war against flesh with the Spirit. The Spirit helps us, and his work in sanctifying us and adopting us mark us as the justified of God. This work will not be unsuccessful. It will not fail, and it will certainly carry us to glorification. Those that he starts that work in, he will preserve. But, 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 what about Israel? The last part of this is the certainty of God's promises, of the doctrinal part of Romans. Now, imagine this. You're hearing him talk about this, how we can be confident of future glorification. But what about God's so-called chosen people who are rejecting their Messiah, rejecting God, not obeying the law? God made all these promises to them. What about those promises? What about them? How can we trust that God will not break his promise with us when his people don't seem to be doing that well. They're rejecting his Messiah. It seems like he's breaking his promises to them. Paul seeks to encourage us and show us that God has not broken his promises, that he's maintained his promise with Israel. Chapter nine, verses one through five, Paul is anguished because his people, the Jews, reject the grace of God. This is a critically important verse to understand in getting what he's talking about here. So so has the word of God failed his people? He hasn't fulfilled his promises to them? It is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul here is saying that just because someone has Jewish blood doesn't make them a part of God's promise. That doesn't make them inherently a part of God's promised people. God's promises haven't failed with Israel. We just don't quite understand who Israel is. Israel's not by blood. It's by the choice of God. God's people are the people whom he chooses, says Paul. And he continues in uh, verse 6 through 13 to say that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, despite both being descended from Abraham. And God chose Jacob and not Esau, despite both being um, uh, supposedly what one would think children of the promise. Only Jacob was the child of promise, despite blood. Chapter 9, verses 14 through 23, the question is asked, well, isn't this unfair? That's not fair. Why did God choose one and not the other? Isn't that unjust? Is God unjust? In verse 17, Paul says, God's purpose is to show his glory. That's his motivation here. And in 9, verse 18 through 23, he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? It is God's prerogative to give the promise to whom he wills, not by blood, but by God's sovereign choice. Now again, remember the point here. The point is to show why we can trust and hope in our salvation when it seems like God didn't come through for Israel. Paul's answer, God did come through for Israel. Blood doesn't make one Israel. God's choice makes one Israel, children of the promise. In chapter nine, verses 24 through 29, he explains that those who have the promise are not only from Jewish blood now, but also from, that are also amongst the Gentiles. And he proves from the Old Testament that this is the case. And then in the last three verses of the chapter, he talks about how Israel failed to see that they needed a righteousness by faith instead of a righteousness by the law, whereas the Gentiles attained a righteousness that was by faith. Chapter 10, verses one through four, the problem with Israel I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They don't know correctly. That's the problem here. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Chapter 10, verses five through 13. Righteousness based on the law requires perfect obedience to commandments. The Jews couldn't do that. They were not children of the promise. Righteousness based on faith is based on our profession of faith, says Paul, and belief in our heart. Very well-known verses, chapter 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So how do you know you're a child of the promise? How do you know? If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you will be saved. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. How can people call on the name of the Lord if they haven't heard him? Well, that's why we need to send people to preach the gospel so that people can hear and believe. Both Jews and Gentiles have heard the gospel via preaching, but not all Jews have obeyed the gospel. Chapter 10, verses 18 through 21. Israel has heard this news, has heard the gospel, and yet rejects it. The Old Testament talks about how God will use the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. God has offered his salvation to Israel, and they've rejected it. Chapter 11, 1 through 6, we'll start here. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So, the question, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected ethnic Israel? He's appealing to his ethnic descent here. And his response is, no, no, he hasn't. Because just like with Elijah and the, the, um, who in that time period, God had saved 7,000 men who refused to bow the knee to Baal. There was a remnant of Israel that God had preserved. Just like then, even now, though many, most Jews reject their Messiah, God has kept for himself a remnant of ethnic Jews who honor and love the Messiah. 11.7, what then? Israel uh, failed to obtain what it was seeking, seeking righteousness, reconciliation with God. It failed to obtain that. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the remnant of ethnic Israel obtained this, but the rest of Israel was hardened. God hardened Israel's heart. They are darkened and blinded so that they won't see the truth. Ethnic Israel largely rejects their Messiah because God has blinded their hearts. There is, though, a remnant that still believes. Chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. Did God harden them so that they'd be gone forever? Is this a a forever thing? He answers, no. God is using the hardness of Israel to, uh, uh, yeah, their hardness, sorry. God is using their hardness to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And by bringing salvation to the Gentiles, he's making Israel jealous. Gentiles are grafted into the people of God. They become part of God's covenant people. If we're Gentiles, we're strangers to the covenant. We're outsiders. But God has shown mercy to us and grafts us into his people. He warns us not to be arrogant towards the natural branches. That means ethnic Israel. Don't be arrogant towards them because it's by God's grace that we are here. 
And he warns that just like part of ethnic Israel was broken off from that, that tree, so too, if we do not continue, we will be broken off and tossed into the fire. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. He says here, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. We talked about that. Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What that means is this hardening of ethnic Israel is not forever. Once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, many ethnic Jews will believe. God doesn't have to do this. God has chosen who his people are. This is not something God is obligated to do. He's fulfilled his promises because we are children of the promise. Yet, out of the goodness and grace and mercy of God's heart, and to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is indeed faithful to his promises, he will save many ethnic Jews uh, by the end of this age. In verse 28, we see that the Jews are currently enemies, but they will be saved in the end for the sake of the forefathers, the patriarchs. Just as we as Gentiles were disobedient and have been shown mercy, so now they are disobedient but will be shown mercy. And after all this, Paul worships. The end of the doctrinal portion of Romans ends with this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given, him a, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So what practical applications of all this doctrine that we learned he crams in the last four chapters. We're going to zoom through this. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he says, because of all this, we ought to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God in worship. We ought to live righteously to respond to what God has done. We don't conform to the world. We don't look like the world. We honor God. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, we are given gifts of grace by God to build up the church. That's how we respond. We turn to our church and we build up the church. We, we, we devote ourselves to the body of Christ. And in 12, verse 9 through 21, Paul gives just general commands that Christians should adhere to. Love one another, honor one another. He says in that part there, don't take vengeance for yourself. God will dole out judgment. So if someone wrongs you, don't take it upon yourself to, to uh, act out vengeance. This is significant because in chapter 13, he talks about submission to the authorities. The authorities are God's instrument to bring vengeance, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The one who does evil should be punished by the government. This is what God has instituted. They're servants of God. The government is servants of God. We ought to submit to them because of that. In chapter 13, verse 8 through 14, he talks about how we should love one another and how the day of the Lord is near, and so we should not act wicked as sinful men. We should act like Christians. All of chapter 14 is talking about how we should express love for one another by accommodating those whose consciences are bothered. So if someone's conscience bothers them on a particular issue, that's not a biblical thing, but something that they're just bothered by, to show them love, we should accommodate their conscience issue and not violate what they would feel guilty about. Now, uh, this is specifically talked about in regard to people who uh, feel guilty for eating meat. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, we have an obligation to care for our Christian brothers. In verse 4, Paul talks about the Old Testament being written for our instruction, to learn from the stories what God desires. In verses 8 through 13, Paul talks about how Christ came as a Jew to fulfill the promises to the patriarchs and so that Gentiles would praise God for undeserved mercy. And in verse 14 through 21 of chapter 15, Paul talks about how he's written boldly because he is an apostle to the Gentiles. He wants to preach the gospel amongst the Gentiles. He wants to visit Rome on his way to Spain to preach the gospel, and he may be looking for some financial support uh, from Rome on his way there. Chapter 16, in verse 1 through 16, Paul gives his final greetings. In verses 17 through 20, he warns to watch out for those who make divisions and those who are deceivers. And then he says, be wise, God will finally and ultimately prevail over evil. 
The very last verse, a uh, couple of verses of Romans says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is the book of Romans in more or less, maybe more, 45 minutes. Now, um, this flow real quick, I would remember this flow because when you are studying Romans someday, knowing and remembering what Paul is trying to address in any particular given section will help you in interpreting what he's writing. The story of Romans starts with us seeing that we are under judgment from God. He is going to judge us because we are all wicked, all of us. None of us will live up to the standard. But he says that we can have God's righteousness if we believe in Jesus. On the basis of that alien righteousness, we can be justified. And that justification is not an end in and of itself. That means that we will start to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what God begins in us, he will follow through and we will one day certainly be glorified. And God doesn't fail his promises. He doesn't, he's not unfaithful. He follows through on what he promises. He kept his promises to the Jews. And even though it looks like many of the Jews reject their Messiah, one day, one day, they will turn to their Lord and Savior. And because of that, Christians, you ought to love one another. Live your lives in service and worship to God. Honor one another. Bear one another's burdens. Submit to the government. Love one another even if it's not what you would prefer. Uh, uh, bear with their unreasonable conscience issues, perhaps. And with that said, let's pray. <laughs> oh God, you have revealed to us the inner workings of how salvation works. You have given us the message of eternal life, the hope of future glory. God, I pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for your word and for the book of Romans and even just the literary masterpiece that you put in here. Lord, may we honor and serve you as those who have been justified by faith. Lord, sanctify us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that one day we will dwell with you in your kingdom. We will be glorified. We will be co-heirs with Christ because you have promised that we would be. Lord, help us to love one another, to care for each other. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.